start again, sorry. Uh, desire causes the current flow, itself flows in turn and breaks the flows. Their, their question as they're trying to break it down is they're trying to move beyond this idea of uh, libidinal want or desire and trying to figure out how uh, things work on what they would call a molecular level. Um, one, of the, one of the challenges that they run into and they talk about this, I, I had a quote up, find it right now because I was talking with OBS. Um, one of the things that they talk about uh, uh, pretty consistently is that desire focuses on partial objects. As they start breaking down sort of what the nature of desire is, uh, Arun, where where does what you were talking about match that sort of, I don't know, desexualization, but also retaining some of the sexualization of the idea of, you know, the, the libido, which from Freud has a deep sexual connotation. It can be desexualized. Uh, Lacan very much explicitly said it was sexual, but there seems to be not quite that. Am I wrong in that? So, I mean, I think part of the confusion is that I think this took me a while for me to realize, but it's a sort of subtle thing that there's three different forms of desire for Deleuze and Guattari. There's libido, Newman, and voluptuous. Now, we should also preface by what I said about the fact that, well, what Deleuze and Guattari are analyzing is what are the conditions for need in the first place? What are the conditions for want? How can you be hungry if you don't have, like, a digestive system? The point that I want to get at here is that Deleuze and Guattari aren't denying the fact that we have lack, right? They aren't denying the fact that, well, people are hungry. They're not denying that at all. What they're trying to say is the logic we've been thinking this has been all wrong. They're saying that it's, it's you know, we've, we've always been, we've always interpreted these things as well people have a natural propensity to want food and hence they get hungry which is sort of what Deleuze and Guattari actually want to challenge and so the problem is not the fact that we don't have these but the problem is that we actually have these and these are sort of the way we have these are that are in the fact that they are created or produced or constructed as Guattari would later say uh, so we, the way I'd see it is that you first have libido, which works in the synthesis of connection, which uh, is a coupling force between machines. And there's a reciprocal presupposition between the coupling of machines and the coupling of libido, the coupling that occurs by libido. So libido basically organizes machines, but at the same time, machines work back and organize libido. Um, and eventually, through a long process of synthesis, of these various syntheses, do we get at voluptuous, which would refer to the subjective phase of desire as in desire as we experience it as you know, modern day capitalist subjects desire as it is modif modified transgrified uh, produced and moved around and uh, organized by you know advertising machines I, I think that's fair um the the thing you're saying that really rings true with me is uh, uh i went through the process of teaching my son uh to uh, go potty. Uh, he's two to three years old. That's a really normal age. It's it's tough because he doesn't actually understand what the need is to shit. It's not a thing that he understands conceptually uh, or understood conceptually. He's starting to. He's doing it quite well. But we actually, as parents, have to teach him that was your stump was your tummy hurting? What did you need this? Well, that means blah blah blah. Like he doesn't have the direct understanding of like. This means that, or this represents that. He has just the sensations around those things. And over time, 
and this was true even with hunger. Babies don't, you know, naturally get hungry. They're just upset because they just want and they they have sort of this natural desire. Is that kind of what you're talking about, Varun? That that sort of training happens where we start placing these desires into their corners and we have the hunger, we have the uh, the the shitting need, we have all of these desires that we match to physical needs, but we've done that through our viewpoint. So that's one aspect of it. I'd agree with that, right? That there's one aspect to the fact that, well, we sort of conditioned people to believe this is your shitting machine, this is your eating machine, this is your pissing machine. There's a sort of conditioning aspect to that that as culture we have to accept. But I mean, another thing that I don't want to bring in is the whole nature-culture distinction, which is something that they eliminate from the very beginning of Hanseatipus, because even nature in itself is just a con- series of contingencies, right? At least it's a sort of fractal fractalization where everything's infinitely machined for Deleuze and Guattari. That's sort of their base ontology here. So if we talk about, well... You know, even the way our body starts connecting to things, right? You can perhaps it. I mean, perhaps there should be more work done in evolutionary theory in this book, which is at least something that I'd be curious to see in the future. But at least the way, you know, your body starts connecting in the first place, that already implicitly implies the social field, right? Um, the way evolution works already implies the social field because it's all contingent on everything else for dualism. Sorry. So. And I, I, I don't, I, I don't want to bring in some other definition of evolution. I think when I speak of evolution, I really, really talk about what Deleuze and Guattari's sort of uh, strange sort of evolution, which is about gradually connecting together and forming these contingent relationships. But well, no, and I just want to make sure that we uh, just clearly say uh, the the it's very early on they make this distinction and they're very clear about it and they say. Lenz has projected himself back to a time before the man-nature dichotomy, before all the coordinates based on this fundamental dichotomy have been laid down. He does not live nature as nature, but as a process of production. There is no such thing as either man or nature now, only a process that produces the one within the other and couples the machines together. Uh, Producing machines, desiring machines everywhere, schizophrenic machines, all species, all of species life, the self and the non-self, outside and inside, no longer have any meaning whatsoever. The, the passage I think you're referring to. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm referring to. Yeah, you're spot on about that. Um, at least I think it's a little bit clear how they say it in, anti, in a thousand plateaus. Um, but so essentially what we're talking about here then is that these contingent relationships form. It's completely contingent, right? That we have the mouth above our asshole basically right it's and that's just the way our body is organized right <laughs> they're not metaphors that Deleuze and Guattari are talking about our body is just connected in these ways and you could say even from then you could even say from a biological standpoint that desires are produced right because they're I mean wants are when I say desire I mean I mean wants are produced right because the object of desire food is produced by the way the digestive system assemblage is organized while well, we have our mouth above our about above our feet and so at least that's a very crude way of putting it. So you, you don't need to worry too much, at least by nature culture distinction, in my opinion, for the listening guitar. I think that's really fair. I like that. Sorry, Misha, go ahead. Yeah, so um, also relating to the uh, chat about um, eventually something growing through production that is akin to something like, a, um, let's say, object-focused desire might be produced through the process. And I, I got some great answers um, on how uh, through the first indices that is something that is 
uh, not a prerequisite. So the object is never a prerequisite for the desire to function. But here's my where my question comes in. How does um, um, Jack manages a privileged object, um, but as not being a prerequisite, yet the partial object is a prerequisite, right, for the desiring machine to work? Or, or am I seeing that wrong? I mean, you may have to say it a second time for me. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah, I was I was lost in my sentence. But the so the the, the privileged object is is maybe not um, necessary for connections of desire to happen. Yet the partial object might be right. Or am I misunderstanding it still? So the the way desire functions is a desire at no point like has an object that is complete, uh, a full body, a mom or a baby or any of those things. In fact, uh, the, the difficulty here is that we have to use uh, the language of full objects in order to discuss partial objects. And we'll get into fully what a partial object is. I think we'll, we're gonna dive into that deeper. But the way specifically that desire works is we have to think about it as being pre-object. It, it is, everything is always connecting to everything else, but it's only the part of a thing connecting to another part of a thing. Uh, it's never that desire goes, yes, I would love that woman. Yes, I would love that book. It is uh, the tip of your finger touching the edge of the desk, not as full objects, but as the thing touching the thing almost purely. And so it's this really interesting process that's happening all the time. Uh, it's the... the uh, all of the partial objects that are happening. Because you're talking about in every single interaction we have thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions possibly of these things sort of firing off, connecting, disconnecting, having different, differing sensations and appearances and all kinds of stuff to the, the connection itself. And so desire doesn't have a privileged object where it's, oh, I want, uh, it doesn't go, I want to be full, I am hungry, mother should be the one to feed me. That's a really complicated sentence. Instead, consider it like a brand new newborn. Newborn immediately knows it has these things. And uh, when you, it's really weird how it works, but the mother grabs the baby, puts it to a breast or the, to, a, to a bottle, and the baby just is, and then starts really figuring out what to do based on all of these, that suddenly it's feeling some kind of satisfaction. At no point is it thinking bottle. It doesn't know what that is. It can't possibly. It doesn't even know mouth or lips. So what is the thing in the nervous system of the baby that's happening? And that's kind of the idea. That's my sort of short way of describing, short it. Way of describing it. Can I play off a little bit? Because there's, there's a really critical point I'm trying to make with Misha there. So I do agree with Brutz. It's not the baby choosing to do these things, right? It's like at that Sartrean level of like uh, consciousness and choice. That's not the matter here. It's not the baby wanting um, these things per se as the baby in that kind of full conscious capacity. Uh, the critical point I'm making with, with what you're asking, Misha, is that you're asking, as I interpret your question, right, don't these things all, right, don't desires rely on some object that's um, at least out of reach? And I, I think you follow me there with my, my, my disagreement there. Now, I see you then trying to say, well, isn't the partial object that object? Uh, yes. That's, yes, yep. Yeah, so that's... That's the critical point I'm trying to make is that, no, the partial object doesn't take the place of that object of desire. With the first synthesis, you're seeing all these different partial objects connecting through desire and desire connecting through them, right? 
there's a mutually contingent relationship between them. So with the with the breast and the mouth, it's not that the the mouth is lacking a breast and that's why it connects with it. It's that both the breast and the mouth are connecting through desire. And in that sense, desire is uh, mutually contingent there. So it's uh, once it's a condition for that, right? It's necessary. But in the same way, it's not like, um, it's not a if desire, then part, then object thing. That, that was exactly my question. Thank you. I think the mutually contingent is, was the, the part that I was missing uh, still. So at least the point, I think, I think we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves. So like, I think we should slow down a bit, at least. The point that I wanted to make, at least with my first examples, is that, and at least a response to Brooks. So what Brooks was talking about was the first, like the primordial functioning of desire, right? I mean, even the word primordial is problematic. But so Brooks was talking, Brooks was talking about the libido, right? Because there are different forms of desire. There's libido, Newman, and voluptuous. And uh, Brooks is talking about the libido. And at least what I was talking about at the start was the was the voluptuous, right? The our, our our experience of desire, how we experience desire as capitalist subjects. So now the problem is the fact that, well, why do we experience desire in this way? If there's something, and this is where Deleuze and Guattari's critique of capitalism comes in, right? The way we experience desire, the way the way wants are manufactured, really, the way wants are manufactured by advertising and stuff is all about creating lack and that's how sort of consumption works and so the point that Deleuze and Guattari want to make as well these uh, contingent relationships don't exist uh, as some sort of natural law but they exist they they're manufactured in part by these various syntheses so it's so like and I, I, I like the digestive system example because it talks about specifically how the desire for some object is produced um, so at least now to return to Brooks's point I want to. I, I think Brooks's explanation of the first form of desire is actually good. So, at least uh, Brooks, when you're talking about libido making connections, that's exactly what they mean in the first, the first like connective synthesis, right? So, and, and I, just really quick, the the because it is important. All I am not talking about the other steps. You're right. There, we're talking about three types of desire, and the the wording around these gets so difficult. I am specifically talking about the first synthesis, effectively the 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 impetus, the first moment. And it's, uh, it's important because when they're talking about desire early on in this part, that's, that's what they're sort of talking about uh, as, as things go, breaking it down to, instead of saying uh, the traditional psychoanalytic path of uh, desire is produced through lack, where I don't have a thing and that's what makes me want a thing, for example, that becomes essentially an anxiety-driven machine or neurotic machine in itself, their 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 view of desire is ultimately a positive productive force at, at at its very base and core and from there things happen and and different processes take place and i think that's the one of the things i really want to get at because desire has so many as a word so many shitty connotations this is a, a terence blake who uh, no doubt will be listening to this at some point a delusian scholar he tweeted out after listening to our chats uh, i have been uploading uh, about uh, how he doesn't even really like the fact that desire is used or libido because it seeds too much to Lacanian and Freudian sort of dogmatic doxa because it basically has a ton of baggage that comes with it. And so he's like, we need to figure out new wordings for this. He's got some proposals, but it's trying to get back to that idea of this positive 
productive force that is the start. And then uh, I'll let you get into uh, Voluptus. Yes, I was hoping at least we could go into a much deeper discussion on how these voluptuous or these wants that we have of everyday capitalist life, how are they produced? So, I mean, I, I, I think if you're fine with it, we can go into like a deeper discussion in how each form of desire works. I think you have the libido down, Zach. I mean, I think you can go ahead and try to explain it. Yeah, so I think um, from there, basically, the, the, the first synthesis is uh, where we run into desire, we create desire, desire is made. Desire also is the energy that creates itself. There's a really, uh, I think, really interesting cyclical nature to these things. Uh, as, as you move from the first step, the first step is just desiring machines connecting because that, that's their thing. They're connecting and it's happening all the time. At some point, uh, the second step, which is essentially disconnection, uh, everyone here is going to correct me on that, but at that point, when we have the moment when the connection is seeded, essentially, for one reason or another, uh, that moment uh, of experience is what we might call voluptus. Is that a very short version of it? Anyone different version? I mean, this is what I'd like to say at the very beginning. Before we start looking at Newman voluptus, I want to just first clarify and make sure that everyone in the group knows what libido is, right? Um, before because then it gets more complicated but at least when we're talking about libido we're talking about let's just say this okay there's no subject yet the subject has not arrived so we're literally talking about this sort of at a pre-individual level where you just have connections being made and these connections are just being made haphazardly and um so let's start with, like, for example, uh, the mouth machine of, of the mother and the, uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> I messed that up, sorry. The breast machine of the mother and the mouth machine of a child. Right now, there's no such thing as a child yet because you just have these indeterminate objects. They're just floating around. And all they are are being interpreted by desire, desires. And now there's another thing to clarify here. Desire is is not possessive. No one possess at least the libido, right? No one possesses libido because first of all, there's no subject. So nobody has libido. No desiring machine has libido. There is just a libido that flows through a desire machine. It's not like you, you can't own it like a commodity. And so you have this flow that's just going around and the flow, what happens with the flow is that it's able to connect two disparate objects together. And, uh, at least my interpretation of why Deleuze and Guattari used the phrase machine comes very much from Guattari's essay Machine and Structure, whereby machine now refers to, if everything's a machine and everything can be machined, it, it's, we're really talking about this univocal ontology whereby connections that we never thought could be made earlier, such as, you know, we, we form these ridiculous divisions with man-nature. The machine is used as a term to remove those divisions that sort of structuralism may espouse. And um, so that's why we, a, a flow of libido can go from literally anything like, for example, to my chair, from my, from, from my, from my desire machine to my chair. Well, because first of all, we're also still talking about the level before the individual. And, <laughs> yeah, okay. But uh, uh, the thing that uh, Deleuze and Guattari are talking about, so since we're at this basic the level before there's a subject, 
we just keep forming these random connections by libido. And uh, essentially what we're doing is we're connecting different machines together. And uh, so before we have an organism, we have these things that are binding together. So the, the, the breast of the mother binds the, the child's mouth together and you have this connection. Now, another thing that I think this is where some of the complicated nuance comes in a Deleuze and Guattari, there's something of a reciprocal presupposition between the two. And uh, this idea of reciprocal presupposition, I think it's better built up in a thousand plateaus, but it's sort of what they imply in anti-Edipus as well. That, well, one thing is you can't have this, the flow of desire without machines that organize it. And you can't have machines that organize it unless desire, or the flow of desire organizes machines at the same time. So you have to wrestle between these two, these two ent the ontological entities that are just working to come together. Yeah, and so if we want to go back to the baby um, who, who doesn't understand anything about the world, has no concepts, and is trying to gain concepts, the really weird to watch a baby breastfeed when they're very young because they basically are, their eyes are going everywhere, their hands, their toes, they're moving them, they're contracting. There's, there's a very much a natural sort of wanting to uh, connect effectively. And that's this, this first step of basically this mass of trying to connect. Now, it doesn't work very often. It's, you know, connecting with the air, wiggling around, not much. But there are other sensations and connections that happen. Brushing the hand against the mother's breast, uh, having her hold your hand, rub your head, uh, being able to look up and see her face, see the rest of her other breast, her chest, the clothes she's wearing, the room you're in, all of these things, little tiny things, partial objects, as the infant would see them. Uh, they're all sort of being put together. Think of it as a almost a LIDAR scan of desire around the room. It's slowly mapping out everything that's happening, and the infant's brain uh, is kind of like going through this process of like, oh, this... This is there, I see color, I see shape, I touch shape, I feel this, I feel warmth, I, I feel heartbeat. Uh, they slowly start putting these things together. And as that process happens, they don't just stay fixated. They're not, their eyes don't meet mommy's eyes and stay there for the rest of their lives. Their eyes break and they move to something else, the nose, the mouth, because they're always seeking other connections. This, this break is the second synthesis, this, this moment. And in that... They basically get, uh, the, the libido gets turned into two types of energy. I don't want to, that's a shitty way to put it, but I'm going to try to say that anyway. Uh, and desire gets transformed into a couple of things. The first is it gets transformed into a, what is called Newman. A, a, a part of it sort of flies off and becomes recording. It's that, uh, that ineffable thing that the baby is remembering about that connection, the generalized sensation it got in a very light way. Again, partial object, but it's creating a sign in that moment that recording's happening on the body without organs. This is when that starts to happen and starts to sort of inevitably come about. Uh, the second part is based on what happened there, that the energy gets consumed. There's a consummation, uh, which has in French is a really interesting word. It tends to mean uh, consumption, completion, as well as uh, a sex. So it has a, a lot of different overtones, consummating a marriage, you can also create a consomme, which is not a bowl of sex. Uh, it is, it's a soup with a, a bunch of things in it that kind of, again, yields that kind of name. Uh, the, the, the setup for these things is about the consummation and that energy, voluptus, uh, that 
uh, kind of generates that third uh, synthesis, uh, which is when we have that moment of, because of all of these sensations that are coming out and the, the con consum consumption of energy, uh, we have the final uh, step. Uh, we'll, we'll get into that in a minute, but this is kind of that second part that's putting these things together. And so if every desiring machine is producing a little bit of Newman recording, and just a little bit, it's just a little bit, but it's every desiring machine. So again, an infant at a mother's breast, thousands every moment firing off constantly. It's literally on the BWO painting a picture of all of these different little signs. And the infant's mind, uh, the infant's subject or whatever, is going to utilize these signs relationally in order to determine what mother is or what food is or what hunger is or these various little things as it starts to figure out how the world around it works in relation to the signs that it's able to make on the BWO. Uh, that's uh, three, the, the three ecologies from Guattari goes pretty deep into this actually, a lot of his work. Um, it's pretty incredible. But I'll, I'll, leave it, I'll leave it open. Uh, anyone want to respond or, or build onto that? Because the second synthesis and how desire sort of, again, libido, whatever we want to call it, um, this energy uh, gets transferred into a few components uh, as we go through every single moment. Again, this is uh, imminent. This is within a singular, singular plane. This is not an ordered or hierarchical thing. This is not step one, then step two. This is just the cycle of how desire is sort of pumping through these machines. One thing I was going to say, uh, Brooks, is like, I think the example you gave of the baby and the mother is actually really good because the idea of the thousands of connections being made, like one question that was being asked in chat earlier was, okay, well, and how is it that we have these kind of desires, like things that seem obvious, like, okay, the child eventually, or the person wants their mother, and the mother is this apparently clear thing in the Oedipal Triangle or the father or whatever, what have you. But I think what's useful is to think of it, again, if we get away from the idea of lack of like, okay, you want something because you don't have it. It's like, if you go back to the baby example, there's, there's thousands of connections being made, many of which are the mother, many of which are other things like, and they talk about this in the book, like they might be toys and they might be parts of the room and they might be, you know, as the child ages, whatever example you want to give, there's lots and lots of different inputs and partial objects that they're reacting to. But then as the, the recording happens and as the, the BWO kind of comes into its own, if you want to call it that, the idea of the miraculating force of like, as connections are severed and sort of repurposed and moved around and things are, are you know, their original kind of ever flowing, continuously connecting and breaking state of that's like that, that surging underneath as, as that is lost, or as, at least to our conscious experience or however you want to call it on a molar level, then there are remnants but they're not because of a lack, you know, there's, there's remnants of these connections that remain. So there's still a connection to this partial object that is the mother or aspects of her that can turn into what, it, you know, feel is like an Oedipalized form of, of a fixation, for example. But it's, but the important part, I think, for them is that it comes from that original, you know, it doesn't have to come from a place of that, what they call needs or wants, that, which are kind of uh, more material things but that it is sort of a byproduct, I guess. Well, and, and Paul asks, uh, on recording, how does recording work if not neuronal? Uh, I'm, I'm guessing you're referring to the idea of like uh, the neurons in the brain, how they connect and how they work, Paul. Is that close to what I think you're asking? Uh, I'm gonna assume yes. Uh, I, I would say that it is 
very similar to how we actually understand neurons working. Um, a, a single sign on the BWO might be uh, analogous to a single neuron. It, a neuron doesn't contain like a billion bits of information of every relational capacity of everything. It, con it connects little moments, little things, things we see, how we've sort of digested them, little partial objects that are connected to other partial objects. Now, when we look at them in mass and the way that they connect, actually, we, like my subject, Brooks, looks back at that and goes, oh, that was my birthday party. I had a great time. There's no fact about that at all. There's no, in my brain, like, this is a great time, big signpost. It's, I look back, my relation that I've placed between these partial objects, which is incredibly complex, I'm able to place relationally in that space. So it works very similarly to that. It's a really fascinating setup. What they're saying also is that we don't privilege how the human mind works because, and I, we'll get into this because one of the early questions I want to get back to is, do, does this apply to inanimate objects? Which I, that's what could be a fun, like six hour discussion, I think, but super, super fascinating. Um, that's just generally how I'd answer that. So at least to come back then to libido. So at least one of, one of the things I was trying to do in my analysis of this is that one of the things that's always challenging in Deleuze and Guattari is at least now that we've finished the book and we're coming back, um, I do think we need to make it a little bit more complicated, right? Because it's not just desire machines. It's also social machines, right? This is something that they build up later in the later chapters. But one thing that we need to understand is the reciprocal presupposition between the two. This, this, this form of libidinal desire or this libidinal flow connects, machine, connects machines together. But at the same time, the social machines that are produced by liminal flows work backwards and essentially uh, condition the way desire functions. Now, the question, I think, if we start getting into the second synthesis and we start thinking about the Newman, is we need to ask specifically how this functions. As in, how, how, how can there be this sort of double pull between the two? Um, and I think that's, in my opinion, what the Newmanal is asking. It's very similar to because if people have read the critique of pure reason, we we talk about like the faculty of imagination, which for, forms like the schematic agent between the understanding and the sensibility. But I don't want to digress too much from the text. That's sort of the way Newman works, in my opinion. Because what what happens now is uh, we have this relationship with desire machines and social machines because one simple functor, and that's recording. And recording is what allows these these. Because recording really is a code at the end of the day. It tells you which way something should go. What records exactly is a representation of this sort of intensive connection. And that representation of that intensive connection that was formed after the first synthesis then works backwards and tells the first synthesis where to go. So to give a little bit more of a sort of clear definition then, I would say that there's something suddenly happens in the connection of these machines. Something suddenly happens in the connection of these flows, whereby they just break. And for, this is what Deleuze and Victoria will talk about, the production of fancy production. Suddenly they'd start, rather than connecting, suddenly they start breaking apart. Now that there are two things that can happen in this breaking apart process. You could either have um, an attraction or a, a repulsion. By attraction means that the previous connections get recorded on something, and 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 then it gets remembered on this sort of space known as the body without organ. Or the second is that you can have a repulsion where essentially they fly off the body without organs. So this affects essentially the way desire can now 
have the reciprocal presupposition between the social machine and the main source of production. Well, is it um, not not really um, a remembering of the body without organs, but it is basically an, a, regis- of a registering of uh, sorts, um, more or less a bureaucratic faculty, which um, registers of, or puts into an index um, the holes left of the non-production of the production machine, if I'm correct, which uh, basically is uh, making a register of all the products and um, into the products. So um, is it that like the third synthesis? Because I think you kind of skipped from the first to the third. Am I right? Is this we have, right in towards me? We have, we have not gotten to the third yet as far as I've been listening. No, I think he stayed in the second really well because he's talking about how the record, um, how the connections work in terms of the recording and that. In fact, if I could expand on what he, um, what Varun's going into, the thing I think we need here too is the the aspect. So when we we say recording, I think there's a temptation to think of like, um, just the writing down of things, right? Like a transcript, and that's not exactly wrong. But I I think we got to bear in mind the aspect of cathexis here or investing where the where they talk about how the body without organs um allows this sort of counter cathexal or counterflow to work with the desiring product to work with the bomb excuse me to work during um with the object with the machines during the first synthesis like Varun was saying it um tells them what to do in a certain sense in doing that, that investing is very much part of the recording. It's highly like accounting-like, but I think that's really major when we're talking about the recording and memory, right? It's not just a simple like transcription of what happened. It's very much the investments that were made into the machines and the counterplay between those machines during that, which will even bring us into the third synthesis later on. Yeah, I think it's a kind of like... Um... Uh, Urfather uh, or uh, Urstaat kind of thing because when they talk about memories they talk about basic um, magnetic tapes and um, like mag- magnetics of ma- magnetic functions are um, highly uh, associated with hypnosis pre-Freudian time and he actually uh, Freud actually conversed with his um, uh, her director at the time in the hospital in which she worked with Meinert, which was uh, also a great um, forefather of psychoanalysis. But Meinert uh, rejected um, Freud's hypnosis and Chakot's hypnosis, therefore, um, because he associated hypnosis with magnetics. And because the magnetic tape in the Deleuze and Guattari uh, memory uh, subject as uh, the memory machine, which is um, shaped like a tape, like um, yeah, 1970s, of course, ma- magnetic tape was what everybody was using. And the thing about magnetic tape is that it's um, as natural as can be. So it's hardly a product of capital. Ma- ma- magnetic tape is um, actually reusable, um, pract- practically ad infinitum. It can uh, record things uh, many times over. Uh, without the with the previous magnetics being completely wiped, but it still has for some reason as a natural 
product uh, still needs the faculties of the capitalist um, recording machine or um, basically video recorder, uh, what we later used in the 80s and 90s, um, onto DVDs right now. So it's not comparable to a laser disc, I'm afraid, because lasers are uh, highly digital. But magnetic tape is uh, more natural uh, than we probably everyone below like 22, 25 can conceive of. So it's a much more natural product, the tape, um, which makes it more useful as an as in an analogy to um, memory. Yeah, the, the, the term we would use is uh, it's analog versus digital. Analog uh, allows for a, a diverse amount of responses and recordings, whereas digital is eternally binary, uh, just by nature. Yeah. Yeah, it has uh, basically the the uh, not the depth, but but the width of the tape is infinite. So uh, in depth, they are like still uh, to the human uh, ear. So between a frequency of twenty and twenty thousand hertz, but the width is uh, analog or uh, infinite. So um, in it can cannot contain too many words. But the words that it contains are infinitely wide. So there is a huge um, blank space um, uh, besides uh, the words of the uh, letters or of the uh, text, etc. If, if that makes anything clear about um, the, the, the difference between analog and digital, because digital has uh, obviously finite uh, with it's it's much more compact in the literal sense um, uh, if you can visualize uh, some sort of um, yeah um, yeah what's against it like yeah I, I, sorry I, I digress I think I made my point no it's it's a it's very good uh, I do want to jump I have one question because we're talking about uh, sort of the nature of uh, in the chat, the discussion is happening around the idea of satisfaction, dissatisfaction, uh, positive, negative, those types of things. One of the things when we start talking about anti-production and, and how the BWO op operates in here, my, my grasp of this is that uh, as recordings are made in the BWO of, uh, it, again, I'm going to try to use the, not use words satisfied and, and dissatisfied, but let's just say um, as signs are recorded that did satisfy desiring production, uh, the implication that they have uh, throughout the text is that the, the desiring machines wish to basically repeat this. They like that sign. They try to go back to that specific thing, almost that, uh, how do they phrase it? The desiring machines try to connect directly to the BWO. They can't because BWO rejects that. But that, that level of repetition, that level of desire and doing a thing again and again that is already... Uh, been recorded as satisfaction, they, they heavily imply that there's a, a push towards that and that uh, the desiring machines kind of are willing to do what worked already. Is that wrong? Um, I, I see where you're trying to go there in terms of the desiring machines, they're trying to access the point signs and that. But I, I want to go back to the, the process of recording here because I think that's going to help explain, I think that's going to be the, the foreground for for even addressing um, and talking about your explanation there. 
is that too, like, again, what I'm trying to get at is that the recording process is not simply like a transcription. So even with the magnetic tapes, right, it's not simply the, the transcription, right? It's also the investments made by the body without organs. So when we talk about the schizophrenic and paranoiac processes and their interrelationships, I actually don't even need enter there, and their relationships with one another, those processes are processes of investing, right? And that is very much part of the recording process, not simply just transcriptionally, but in terms of the recording itself. So it's not simply like um, with, with the magnetic tapes, right? We have a tendency to think about like kind of just the signs being there, but it's, it's this element of the signs and there's still this point about um, what I might call a meaning or more directly an investing here of the functionalities of the machines during the processes, which starts to build up what would be, which is the, the, uh, the matter of the recording in the first place. So on the body without organs where you have these connections happening and the processes of miraculation and repulsion, right? Where you have those point signs and this sort of um, amorphous grid, right? A non-symmetrical grid because the body without organs doesn't need that kind of uh, neat symmetry. We do have these point signs, yeah? And we do have those connections between the, um, the desiring machines and the body without organs uh, in relation to that. But this is part of that, that process of falling back on production where the desiring machines, um, in what they're going to do in terms of production, right? How they're gonna function during the numinous with the disjunctive synthesis, right? At this point, they've already connected. Yeah, this is a question of what the production is basically going to do how the body without organs is going to produce surplus value through them. Yeah, I really like the point that Alyosha made in chat, that recording essentially, I mean, first of all, recording already implies, and I think this is implicit in the language, right? Recording means that there is something in the past that's already implicit. So recording is always a past connection, a past intensity that's felt when to machines connect well, connect to one flow of desire or they're organized by that flow of desire so and uh, the point to also be made and they stress this enough and for some reason it's you see like some pretty negligible to a scholarship that messes this up completely but that the fact that the body without organs is always produced but at the same time that it's produced it essentially affects the flow of desire and really at least when we start talking about chapter three and stuff which is if you want to take this to a much more nuanced level it's interesting to start seeing how this really plays out right because uh well you look at the assemblages of these pre-state societies there's something very interesting going on in these pre-state societies right their organization of production is so different than ours um in the sense that well they'd uh, they have to always destroy the surplus for example potlatch um at least today, we have all we always have to keep collecting surplus, you know, competitive motor production. But the point that the body without organs is illustrating is that we can have these different relationships, is because the recording surface in the body without organs is organizing desire machines differently, and it keeps it forming this reciprocal presupp presupposition between the way desire functions and the way 
the body without organs conditions desire to function. So the thing is, and this is where the complicated thing part is that the body that desire machines produce the body without organs, but at the same time, the body without organs work back and condition desiring machines. So I think a very clear example, this is the Oedipal triangle. A child that is recorded in Oedipus triangle on a certain body without organs will essentially fall into an Oedipal framework, even though perhaps they had no Oedipal desire in the first place, really. There's no natural law for any of this. Yeah, to, to say the, I, I really like how Holland talks through sort of the example again about the, the baby on the breast. Uh, uh, the connection between mouth and breast, for example, gets broken when it is finished producing its product, which is nourishment or satisfaction. As the connection gives way to disjunction, it registers on the body without organs as a sign of satisfaction, and the infant rejects the breast and turns away. The mouth is now freed from the breast and may lapse into quiescence or become another organ altogether, an organ for expelling instead of ingesting, for example, if the infant proceeds to burp or vomit, which happens a lot, or an organ for smiling, or an organ for expelling air instead of liquid, spouse sighs or coos or cries. More significantly, the infant may pull away from the breast for other reasons, without any ultimate physiological satisfaction having been achieved. Perhaps a smile caught its eye, and it suspends the mouth-breast connection to pursue an eye-face connection, and then maybe looks away and brings a finger into connection with a lock of hair. In each case, the disjunctive energy of anti-production functions to suspend one organ-machine connection, but only for the sake of another, in an open-ended series, either mouth-breast, eye-smile, finger-hair, or whatever. The body without organs is thus ultimately what frees the human animal from instinctual determination, or it prevents us from remaining fixated on any specific, developmentally or historically, given mode of satisfaction. The example they give is, what possibilities would exist for the development of culinary arts, for instance, if humans remained exclusively fixated on the breast for nourishment or for oral gratification? The senses and organs can operate productively, in the broadest sense creatively, only on condition they are freed from pre-established or instinctual connections and modes of satisfaction. And that is the effect of anti-production, to produce the body without organs, as a kind of tabula rasa on which objects of drives and instincts register so as to multiply and differentiate. And again, to say again, as he says, it, this produces the body without organs as a kind of tabula rasa on which objects of drives and instincts register so as to multiply and differentiate. This is in Holland's uh, reading of Anti-Oedipus, uh, page 32. Uh, the PDF is in, inside of one of our channels, if you need it. I'll link to it in a second. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good explanation. I think he's spot on about that concept. But at least the complicated part that comes in is now we need to fit this into the whole social field, right? Because that's the difficulty in goals and Guattari is that the social field is always connected to these. The social machine is always connected to these desire machines. Well, and we're not we're makes... not we're not quite there yet because there's still one more step to how desire functions before we start getting into the desiring machine, and it's the third synthesis. Right, but no, before that, each, so this is, I think, this is at least my interpretation. Each, like, the first synthesis has two aspects to it. It has a social synthesis, and, yeah, but the problem is creating this binary. Is, like, when we when we logically explain it like this, it sort of has that, but in reality, there's no logical distinction. The, the distinction that we make right now between social and, uh, like, these sort of individual desire machines are purely out of uh, nominal vocabulary. Right? There's no distinction, actually, in reality, when we speak about these things. But so for every every synthesis, there is a social synthesis and 
um, and essentially a pre-individual synthesis as well. At least that's how I interpreted Brooks. Now, through this process, though, and it is the, the third synthesis is really important to their entire setup, and it's really where desire, I don't want to say culminates, but uh, the resultant effect, because this is where we get into the idea of want or need. So I've been, we've been slowly heading this direction, because when I say I want something, or I wanted this, or I like, today I had eggs and sausage for breakfast, I like them. When I say something like that, that's not my desiring machines firing off. It's the third synthesis. And the, and the third part is during all of this, there's this amazing energy that gets thrown off that creates this sort of subject. It creates the, the me, the cogito, that looks back on all of these things and all this stuff and goes, wow, I really, I liked eggs. I ate those eggs. I exist as a thing. And that's the, the third step is... Again, not ordered steps, not anything. This is all happening imminently. But in that moment, I'm created. And I'm created sort of post these other effects, that these things exist as part of this milieu and this cycle. And I am able to then recognize them, see them, recognize myself in them, and then call those things mine, my desires, my wants, my needs. Uh, it's super weird to watch a baby go through this. Uh, kids three and it's really strange to sort of see as he starts making that switch to understanding what he can call himself or how he is it's absolutely not how we are born seeing the world so it's really fascinating yeah no right the key idea here is we're talking about the production of subjectivity correct we're, we're talking about the the production of the subject and where it happens and how desire gets created and the complex way that desire uh, uh, works uh, I don't want to say behind the scenes or under the scenes because that assumes a great deal of stuff, but it's probably the closest analog where it, it's happening uh, not because I go, excellent, I am a completely free cogito that I am the one who determines everything. Ha ha, I am the one who has needs. I want this, I want that. But there's a great deal more interactions and complexity. And in that interactions and complexity, we believe we begin to exist and we start to call these things us. And this is when we look back on the body without organs, it's why I, the term is so perfect for it. Uh, I'm able to see not only all of my organs, but I see my body. That's me. I identify deeply with that, and I wander that that body without organs. Yeah. So now the key thing to ask from this is right. You are constituted by your desire, and after being constituted by your desire. For some reason, you make a switch whereby you say, no, 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 I am not constituted by my desire. Rather, I constitute my desire and I want X, Y, Z, right? When you make that consciousness switch, now you get to the stage that I was at least talking about at the very beginning. So you get to the capitalist subjectivity stage. So you say, no, I was not constituted by that desire. It's my desire and this is what I have. And then you get into the stage where you start feeling lack. Because now you start getting an object of desire, right? That's the essential the switch that Deleuze and Guattari are going to make with them when they mean the production of subjectivity. Yeah, that's really great. So now I think this is when we get to the challenging part now. At least now that we've laid this basic framework. One thing that we need to understand now is how the social field specifically impacts these three connections, right? Because really the question we're trying to ask now is 
how can we have all these different historical situations with all these different strange desires popping up all the all the time right we look at these uh, pre-state societies where i mean it's just different form of desire than capitalist society because the desire the way desire flowed was that well you have to destroy your surplus and today it's all about well we need to, we we have no choice but to valorize our surplus and so at least that's the question now we need to ask because and that's the question i'm going to at least just present for now and we can go into deeper discussions soon with it can I, um, because I think now that I understand better how these three desiring works, I'm really curious about the question that Bostgert uh, asked previously and that um, Joe also talked about, about these um, the, the, the space that there is for, for recording and also the space that there is to, let's say, con is it right to say condition the, the, the subject in a way? Um when when you when you said uh, that a child is framed inside the uh, Oedipal triangle, yeah. So no, yeah. I, sorry, I don't want to interrupt, but it's not condition; it's create the subject. Right. So this 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 um, body without organ organs with its with its recordings is produced, but how does it? Let's say how exactly does it? deproduce or like decay in the sense that what are the boundaries of that like when is the tape full or when is the tape ready to be taped over um how do you let's say break free from the edible triangle can you i'm not sure i follow your question are you asking if the subjects produce how do you Break out of the Oedipal Triangle. So I, I'm gonna I'm gonna take it in a different direction, Misha. But follow me on a slight journey here. There, there is no pre-individual Oedipalization. Not how it works. The, the classic Freudian idea is that we are born into the world of the Oedipal, and the ideal situation for us at birth, pre-individual effectively, that is innate to humanity is that we, we need to be Oedipalized as we grow. And if we're not, we obviously aren't adjusted to society because that is the natural state of man. The losing water, you take a different take. Through all of these processes, we're able to begin to di, di, uh, understand and uh, sort of divine how the world and partial objects relate to each other. Where Oedipalization comes in is not pre-individual, but instead the opposite, that once I exist as a subject, and I'm, all these things are mine, someone walks up to me and goes, you know, you can't fuck your mom. And that really is an interesting thing to say because that is some full objects there. That's not partial objects, it's full objects. And it's full objects that I'm being denied. And there's an implicit thing that happens when I'm being told I can't have that thing that I want, that I want that thing. And so what I've done is, in that process, as I've begun to integrate it, I've actually taken whole objects and placed them, triangulated them on the body without organs amongst a lot of partials. And what I've done is instead of allowing the connections and relations to be what they are, I'm now prescribing what they need to be. I can't just allow myself to connect to a book or have a drink of water or rebel against the government or be a shitty president. The only things I can do are in relation to how I treat my father and my mother. That Oedipalization. Those are the only relations. All everything has to become that. I can't. I can't just have uh, 
Trump can't just be a shitty, shitty dude. He has to, well, it's because he didn't, you know, get along with his father and all of his followers just want a big, strong daddy. That's everything has to be in relation. And so because of that, it in reverse, pre, it moves into the pre-subject, these ideas that reorganize how I'm able to think about things. Now, because of that, it starts through, as we went through last week, the paralogisms start really going off and things start really breaking in these processes. Because suddenly, instead of just having this sort of freedom of wandering between things and exploring the world as I'm able to, which is a kind of a beautiful, wonderful thing, I'm now very prescriptive. I have to go in these directions. An example would be when you teach a, a young boy and you say to him, a man doesn't cry, that kind of thing. Now I, can, now I know my relation to crying as a boy. It's not, unless I want to be, you know, not one of those men, but one of those other kinds of guys. So these, these concepts and these full objects move into the realm of partial objects and force us to relate to them differently. Uh, Trump can also just be a shitty dude. I'm not saying I like Trump. I'm just saying that, like, edipalizing everyone is the very point of, of what they're talking about. But, but, but Brooks, look, well, what I think the, um, the point to make is that even if it's valid, like, even if it's a valid question to ask, um, was Trump's father abusive? And does that make him um, your president? <laughs> not my, but uh, does it make him the, the, the bad you never wanted or something? Even if it's valid to ask that question, let's say we look at the universe where that's completely normal, then it still is part of psychoanalysis, is what they argue. So even if there are weird people in the world who say, uh, you want to fuck your mom or you want to fuck your dad. Like, besides that, even the serious people who bring it up for um, completely valid reasons, maybe you could say at the crime scene for something, did this person ha have an unhealthy relationship with his mother and therefore killed um, his family, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, something that might be asked, even if this, this is the case, it's completely valid, then it's still not um, not a scientific question. So um, that, 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 that's kind of what fascinates me, you know, rather than the big analogy, is how is, is it like, um, besides the moral point, moral stance, uh, an... Uh, such a conundrum, but but then of course you go like to Freud. If Freud is the first, uh, is Oedipus himself, um, and that brings us to I think what many of us kind of concluded to Nick Land and uh, Mark Fisher and uh, the CCRU and hyperstition, because if Freud is like the first Oedipal, did he bring with his um, basically? Uh, his own mythology, did, did he revitalize or bring, bring us the plague, bring us uh, Oedipus? You know, that the, and, and I think that if you, if you start to get the feeling that's the case, then you, you start to get interested in, like Nick Lent or Mark Fisher or both, or, um, you know, capitalist um, yeah, um, philosophies, I suppose. Less, yeah, acceleration. Can you say? Um, if 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 you allow me, I I just want to go back to to my question for one second because I feel like that I didn't phrase it correctly. So, I feel like 
I missed the essence of my question a little bit. And that is, I, I totally get that the uh, edible triangle is something that comes after uh, and doesn't have to do with the original synthesis of production. Um, but what I'm getting at is, um, so l l let's say society changed suddenly. Tomorrow I wake up and the whole Oedipus thing never happened. Yet it is still recorded in a way. Or at least it is still, it has still been produced in the past, but everybody changed their mind at all, all at the same time. How does that process of, 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 of recoding go? How, how does that work with, let's say, um, I don't know, uh, re-recording up on the, the, a similar service or a, or a service sort of fading away as new service is produced? I think that's the, the part that I'm interested in. So to get at your question, we have to move into the SOSI and coding, right? And this is the heart of, this is a major heart of chapter three, because we're talking about how desiring production and, and these, these elements work in relation to codes, right? How coding, recoding, overcoding, and decoding take place. Right now in the context of our discussion, the one thing I want to make really clear here, um, if I can remember it. There's been like three discussions going on in chat on top of this one. So I'll give you a second. The one thing I want to make clear here, though, is that the subject is produced and that with something like Oedipus, it does, it, it Oedipus has a, a so right, Deleuze and Guire are going to talk about how Oedipus is, um, is not produced by the unconscious per se, but is produced by paralogisms, right? And in that way, it can be affect the unconscious. Uh, with things like subjectivity in the subject, right, we're talking about how voluptus is moving through the, um, the, the desiring machines, right? How subjectivities are have not only been produced but distributed and now consumed, right? How intensities are consummating these machines. The one thing I want to get at with that, where I heard about the Cartesian eye and that, and they get into this with Blonde Show um, later on in chapter four, but the one thing I want to get at there is like, even when we talk about the baby, right, we're talking about subjectivities, we're talking about intensities, the machines within that assemblage are being, are not only being produced through, but are taking on, right? So, right it's always important to be careful there because we don't want to put this back into like we don't want to take the uh, metaphysics of the unconscious and put it back into consciousness but from a very technical standpoint is there is there a maximum of recordings that can exist at the same time from a metaphysical I don't know. I'm I'm no quantum mechanic uh, <laughs> engineer. Are there any quantum mechanic engineers here who can answer that question? Um, I would say that the question is a bit. I don't know if I fully understand your question, but whether they can even. But I mean, I think the question is a bit. I don't know how it really relates because I mean, I, please clarify for me if I got something wrong, right? Because the role of the body without organs, as an agent of uh, recording or memory really functions to uh, 
act as an agent that, well, take for example the law. The law works because it records something on the subject. Essentially, it's to actualize a certain flow of desire. That's what recording really is. The role of recording really is. So, if you take the law as 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 sort of prescription saying that you cannot do X Y Z, and that records that. Well, the way it records is that it creates guilt, and now that guilt works affect the flows of desire, and. Uh, and then, but this recording can change, right? So I, I would say, if in terms of he's talking about like a sort of temporal analysis of how long something can go, it'll depend on, you know, what the social conditions are. So what the social conditions will record at a specific point of time, and that affects the flow of desire. Now, obviously, and this is the point that the losing guitar is trying to make here. So these social relationships keep changing. So when these social relationships change, the recording will change, and hence the flows of desire will change as well. Yeah, and I think that's exactly, and I'm sorry this is very abstract, um, but I think that's exactly what I mean, that so that a recording indeed has to be in some way replaced in the, sen in the sense that if you have a, dis if you have a disjunction where, the, where there's an or, but then let's say a millisecond later you have a similar disjunction and then the other or gets, gets recorded, does that make sense? Isn't isn't just everything, everything at all the time. So I'd say my interpretation is that I guess it gets, I don't want to make a, a claim about whether something gets replaced or not. Cause I want to be as textual as possible. At least in my reading, I don't really remember them talking about this whole idea of whether something gets replaced or changed my interpretation. And this is my sort of synthesis here. I'm pretty sure it'll get replaced. Right. Because in order to, and this is a logical formation that I'm making, right? In order to have something new, you need to have something replaced. And if you don't have something new, well, then you can't have a new structure. You, you, you can't have a new mode of desiring. And, well, they find three mo new modes of desiring. So something has to be replaced. Yeah, but um, we're talking about time, right? In time, basically nothing gets replaced. Everything appears. Everything appears together so is that like the, the temporal uh, facilitation of the uh, basically universe you know as it is and are it like the the, the the veto and the opposition therein because you can presuppose it either way you can say um, does it, it all just exist at once but you can also say um, does this solely exist um, you know, and you could say that about the other, and if you say that about the other, then nothing exists except the existence of the other and the inexistence around that. So it's kind of like a synergoche, uh, as I like to view it, in a metaphysical sense, but in a temporal sense, um, everything can exist at once and doesn't replace, but it doesn't quite overlap either. It is... It is basically a flow, is what, what you're talking about, I suppose, then. Um, uh, maybe. I don't know if that's my conclusion, but uh, I, I think that, like, they, they say, is, is, the, is the, my question actually is, is the Deleuze and Patari flow, is it timeless or is it with time? Because that, that always. Um, I never quite got the answer on that in the book, I think. Maybe somebody 
that's something about that. So, this whole idea about synthesis and time, it's not what's happening in anti-Oedipus, I'll say that. So at least, it's not their main topic of focus, right? So, I don't know why they would write about it. But, um, the thing to be made, then, if you want to read Deleuze's philosophy of time, read the second chapter of Difference and Repetition, because that's spot on. What Deleuze is saying in the second chapter of Difference and Repetition is, he's asking the question of, uh, well, so in the first chapter of Difference and Repetition, he says, well, we have a theory of univocity. What's the theory of univocity? Well, everything changes in time. And time is what, uh, the theory of univocity is everything's in time. So everything changes. Then Deleuze in chapter two will sort of use his form of three syntheses to deduce the fact that, and I, I must preface also, I don't want to cause too much confusion because uh, there's something in our series. So uh, difference in repetition syntheses are very different than anti-Oedipus syntheses, same way that the connective and disjunctive and conjunctive and logical sense is all very different. So I don't want to start equivocating here immediately. But I mean, sure, we can make connections, but I don't want to start equivocating. Uh, so the point about the syntheses of time in uh, Kant is that, well, Kant is talking about the way intuitions are produced by these temporal relations, but we can only sort of synthesize, we can only understand these as a subject just if we synthesize them in different ways. And for Kant, it's the categories that give you that a priori foundation for synthesis. Now, Deleuze wants to, in, in Difference of Repetition, second chapter, critique this whole structure, so he's going to say, well, you can't just derive the condition from the condition. So, Deleuze's philosophy time and Difference of Repetition becomes very much this whole structure of whereby uh, these passive syntheses, rather than, so these pre-categorical, they don't have Kantian categories applied, but these pre-categorical and pre-subjective syntheses condition time which essentially conditions a structure of change and the ontology of becoming. So that's that's a very simple. We can go into difference in repetition, but I mean we are talking about anti-Oedipus. That's that's what he says in difference in repetition. So once we do get to anti-Oedipus, though, this whole notion of time, we're not talking about the synthesis of time anymore. We're talking about the synthesis of desire, and that's why I'd say I mean I'd say. Perhaps it's an interesting connection, but I can't really draw it because we're not talking about the synthesis of time anymore. We're talking about the synthesis of desire. Yeah, but uh, it's well mechanic desire, and of course, can a machine really desire? The answer is no. So, what kind of desire is it um, if it's not um, if it's mechanical desire, right? That's that's kind of where um, I guess Guattari shows his militant militantism or. This kind of aggression in the theory that um, there, there you you can make machines desire, um, but I'm wondering if that that can be done outside the war machine. I don't know. Uh, I only read Thousand Plateaus one time, I suppose. It would be in there, but um, yeah, but it's a lot for the book. A lot for the explanation. It was a good explanation. Thanks. All right. Uh, I think, uh, I mean, that was a really fantastic hour and a half. I'm here now. I think we move into a place of uh, questions, comments, and other things, because we kind of covered a lot of stuff I wanted to get through. Uh, partial objects, desire, uh, how the body works, what the body is. I'm having other side conversations in other texts. It's great. Uh, the chat is going great. But if there's anyone with a question, don't hesitate. Now's the time. Let's do it. 
I feel like one thing that we haven't really covered is maybe the words, the term specifically desiring machines. Because last week we went into a little bit how the machinery, uh, how, how a desire is a machine. But could we maybe restate that? Because I, I, it, it, I forgot again. Okay, so the term machine doesn't come from Deleuze. It comes from Guattari. So he wrote an essay called Machine and Structure. And now, at least this essay is really an essay in linguistics, right? So there's still a lot, a lot prior before we get to Antiedipus. But he contrasts machine and structure in two ways. Machine structure refers to basically your, your standard Saussurian linguistic diagrams of complete equivocation, where one term can signify another term, and one term can represent another term. Machine, on the other hand, for Guattari, is about a singularity. And this is this is basically, and the citations he give, gives are very much indifferent in repetition, whereby you can't represent it. So that's sort of the more complicated phrasing of why we use machine. But now to be a little bit, I, I think there's a simpler way of putting this also. And the simpler way of looking at it is in anti-Oedipus, everything is a machine, everything's a machine off a machine, so they're sort of fractal, right? You keep going to the molecular level, you can keep going as low as you want based on your perception of things. Now, yeah, there you go. Brooks just posted the essay. It's a really good essay, actually. Uh, but now to make the, the point about why, why, why do Lewis and Guattari use the term machine, right? Why can't they just call a partial object a partial object? Why do they need to talk about machines? Well, throughout the history of philosophy, we have all had all these sort of terms being used at so many things. We've all these concepts that sort of really some of them are really strange. For example, the individual. Can you really have an individual? Can you really have something that's indivisible? I don't know. But the point that Deleuze and Guattari are trying to make is they use the term machine is because they want to avoid all these categories that we have. For example, nature, culture, man, woman. There are strange binaries that we have that we think that there can be no connection between the two. The term machine, if everything's a machine, that means that everything can work on everything else. Everything can connect with everything else. The term machine then denotes this... Uh, sort of a new way of thinking about connections, whereby, um, whereby, like, my, that there's a perhaps connection between me and my dog, there's a machinic connection there, uh, even though, you know, we can, we, people have been talking about, like, man nature and stuff, and so, therefore, machine is a term to essentially help us understand connections that we never thought might have been in the first place. And now desiring machines are machines that essentially are connected by flows of desire. So what makes two machines connect together? Well, they're flows of desire. And what guides flows of, and this is at least what I've been trying to sort of start from the very beginning, is that uh, flows connect m machines together, but at the same time, machines organize the way flows flow. And that's very much conditioned by the body without organs. And so this is in response to a more structuralist earlier idea of things only existing as, as oppositions or something? Is that correct to say? Yeah, that's one way to think about it. I think, that, I think you're spot on about that. But, but, you know, we can also open up new interpretations, right? I mean, some people like to think that the term comes, Guattari is getting the term from Simon Don and the way Simon Don understands machine and object and stuff. But I mean, that's my interpretation. I mean, I'm sure I'm really curious to hear how other and this is and this is my interpretation having read Watsuri's essay. I'm sure I'll be interested to see what other people have to say about it too, though. So uh, for me, 
I'm actually, and I'm, I had a quick chat uh, in text uh, with Terrence Blake on this, and I tend to be in agreement with him. The, the challenge for me is that in, in the English use of the word machine has connotations, again, that I think when this happened and they originally came up with this, it may not have had it in the same way. Because again, I think Faroon's spot on in the sense that they were trying to say, look, we've had these ways of defining things before, the different types of creatures, different phylums, different setups, different ways that things can interact from uh, organic to inorganic, from sentient to not, all these uh, individual, collective, whatever. But we have these weird dichotomies and they really, really hate dichotomies, uh, especially Deleuze, but Guattari for sure. And it's things like uh, a man versus woman uh, as, as a concept. Uh, they really have never been kind of a fan of that binary system that exists there. And so the creation of the idea of machines is how machines, generally speaking, you can interlock all the different types of machines. It's a dog machine with a food bowl machine or a cat machine or a toe machine or like all these different things that make up all the components that is life. It doesn't necessarily matter if something is an inanimate object or not, like we're, we're discussing now, instead of what things are, which becomes less important, it's about more what things produce. Uh, and the, the production of what a thing is becoming, the process of a thing is far more important. And I think as they make the concept of machine, my big problem with it is the, the machinic as an idea is itself a bit stilted and isn't, isn't quite, I think, what they were ultimately trying to get at. I have a different take think on it um but i think the the use of machine definitely comes from that same space where it's them trying to say that things that uh we know can connect with each other um my my son puts his hand on a on a cold rock and rubs the moss that is a finger moss machine like that's a just as an example and it's like he thinks it's the most amazing thing ever which it, it is when you're a kid and you touch it, it's like what the fuck is this that that's multiple types of things that otherwise prior to this weren't really considered to be interacting in a meaningful way as a thing itself as a process and that was the yeah i think that the the interest is very diverse uh, you, you, I, I mean you could uh, read books about plants about dna um genes you know and uh, basically everything could could still be a part of the of the joy of being a machine and um, I think that that is also something Foucault did very well. Foucault said that uh, the genealogy of words of the episteme of words is um, is combined with plants are invented upon plants so that is how they basically still um, live so I think a lot of French philosophers took basically side interests and combined them with their philosophy. But I think it's also what Peterson does, you know. Peterson says, uh, okay, you are a human machine and we believe pretty much in genes and um, uh, that and not every, that, that so some people are superior, I suppose. Um, and then he says, yeah, but there are these rules and there is this psychology to, to your machine, you know. And um, basically people start to get self-aware and that's, I think, the, a good thing. But they, they, they kind of see themselves as a psychology machine is something, I think, very um, 
2015, 2012, 2015. I think psychology machine because it's all except in Freud in Oedipus. After all, there has never been uh, a hard no on uh, or Oedipus has never been debunked as far as I know. You know, this book is still a critique. So uh, I think there there is um, as, as a desiring machine, there is uh, still a psychology machine active, you know, out there. Well, and I think another part of it that the, the genealogy of it and the intention, I think, is about mirroring uh, the understanding of how we're able to grasp how things work together. And the use of machine is a very timely thing for the 50s and 60s, uh, because that was kind of the language used for a machine created things, developed stuff, things like that. Uh, I think as we move into a, a different type of world where uh, networks are able to even and inside of computers generate their own realities and deep dreaming becomes a thing as uh, data is able to be processed the way that it is at incredibly fast speeds in incredibly unique ways. It, our ability to have a conversation about machine, again, to me, there's some shortcomings in how we talk about it in the same way that uh, a computer doesn't necessarily have a, an impetus or a start in the same way that, say, a, a factory machine does that produces toys. It needs an input. It needs a setup. And that's not really the case as we understand it now. So I think, again, the terminology is, I think, switching over time. I tend to go a lot more with the phrase uh, apparatus, uh, which I think plays more nicely into some of those things and the systematic nature of it. But uh, Bostgard asks, is there a benefit of calling these engines over machines? I feel like personally it has helped since with an engine I have to consider what turns it and to what ends while machines to me are inert or similar to blueprints than dynamos. Yeah, that's it. I think this is where we start getting into the language. Um, it is, I mean, they, they say we're not being, uh, we're not trying to be representative. We're talking about the thing. But I mean, they are. The, the, we're not talking about literal machines in the sense that there are gears and a crank turns or what type of machine they are. They're discussing the sort of nature of machines, uh, the, the process that they are, they are about process. They are a series of parts that are making things and producing things. And so when we talk about these things as uh, sort of going through that process, it's, it's one of the shortcomings of the language. It's, it's a thing that a lot of people are, I don't know, a lot of people are toying with different ways of sort of playing with that and what other words might be used. A lot of good writing on that. Do they, do they ever lay out um, some kind of, uh, let's say, summary of, of the conditions necessary for machines to produce? Yeah. Yes, they do. That's um, that's really what the first chapter of Fantasy Oedipus is. The question is, how did the machines produce? Well, that's and but then maybe also how in the how the desire or conditions to the desire itself, maybe even are there conditions to the desire itself? Exactly. So. Now, the first stage of desire, libido, at least I assume you're talking about the first stage of desire and not the third stage, which is, you know, our sort of capitalist stage, of, uh, capitalist subjectivity where we, you know, we want things. The first stage of desire, this libidinal energy that creates connections, it's, uh, so it creates, I'll, I'll, I'll rephrase this, I think this is a very hard idea to get across because it's really, it, it only comes across when you, when you finally read the final chapter of the book and you're like, you realize the whole sort of dialectic is set up. So... Desire machines connect. I mean, desire connects machines. So desire connects uh, 
a flow of desire connects um, this uh, these these the the mouth the the mouth of the child with the mouth of the mother, the mouth of the breast. So, but at the same time, social machines organize the flow of desire, and there is a a, a reciprocal presupposition between the two. You can't have you can't have desire that's without without a social field, and you can't have a social field without desire. And the reason they're doing this is because they want to avoid causal analysis, right? It's a bit problematic if we start saying this causes this or X causes Y. Then we just become, you know, really dogmatic Marxists. I think that's what Deleuze and Guattari are trying to do. But so, um, from a from a let's say very basic standpoint, um, how much of our of of the things of the partial objects that we mm, Excuse me. Let me rephrase it in 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 an example. Um, how do things work in a vacuum for them? The correct answer is they never work in a vacuum. Yes. Okay. Exactly. That's that's what I was. Okay. Yep. So, just just to continue that, a hard prerequisite is to have things, right? Exactly. You know, because we're not starting from like we're not doing a complete. Well, this is how the universe began, right? To, to listen, which I don't know, right? We don't know any of those kind of things, right? So we just have to speak about these uh, reciprocal presuppositions where you have to have these two terms, and then we can understand what's given in our sort of thing. Open for more questions as. We're having a lovely debate. I think we're going to end up having to have some kind of offline debate. I'll just announce it at some point to discuss inanimate objects and this process because there's a lot of writing on this and it's a really fun discussion. I think. I think it's fun. Uh, and we'll see if uh, Jack can figure out what I'm quoting. <laughs> uh, any other questions? I had a I had a quick uh, back and forth with Rose who asked uh, excellently. So where where is the body? How do I view my body? What is the body as part of that? Uh, is anyone else generally asking? Is it was a good set of questions. Uh, I'm trying to poke and I'm trying to prod, getting someone to ask stuff. I mean, the thing is not to take your body as a given, right? So. A body is produced, right? A body is comprised of all these different partial objects or organizings, right? It's not to take the body as um, as something that makes all of that oblique. Yeah, how, how I would say that they define your body is where you see the limits of your desiring machines due to the nature of how the subject is created. Well, that also be an important point to the machinic there too because one of the effects of how they use machinic is to get at that man nature distinction but also the industrial humanist distinction right one that i i think um we're familiar with and what makes it so difficult and what you alluded to earlier brooks is we want to think about machines and industrialization as kind of um divided from human um values or nature or whatever you like right that humanity is in and of itself a naturalist thing and that uh, the machine that kind of threatens that or the industrialization does, right? And this is why I think they go into examples like little Hans, right? 
the way that machines in the typical sense, right? The way that machines are actually very much a part of who he is. And we see this even in like disability studies, right? The machines in just that colloquial sense comprise who they are and they don't define themselves as a body attached to a machine, right? Their body is understood in this more sort of fluid sense or more so in the sense that it's, and this is kind of a little bit of our Tovian point, but that it's not simply the organs themselves that um, connote a body, right? Or even denote it. Actually, yes. And it's, I mean, it's the, the difficulty with uh, everyone has with, with trans people is essentially some, they're people who have said to themselves and looked at their body and they've looked at their body without organs and they've said, well, wait a second. Uh, whereas there's a lot of prescriptive natures of what sex you're born as, maybe not so much on the gender side and started breaking these things down and saying what body is defined as. And it's, it's one, one of the reasons I've always been attracted to lose what, what your body is, what you are is uh, not necessarily this, this, uh, how to put it, uh, societal demand, the, the apparatus you've been given as the setup of defining what these things are in the same way that Oedipus uh, in demanding that you do one thing or not do one thing says that you actually want to do another. Uh, any sort of prescriptive behavior saying this is what a man looks like, this is how a man behaves, this is how a woman behaves, this is the parts a man or a woman have. It's All of these things are prescriptive and become ultimately damaging. And instead, we just need to allow connections to be connections. I also want to mention on the inanimate front, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read just very quickly um, a few notes uh, from Terence about how he says we need to be thinking about it. Uh, we need to be thinking about desire or libido instead as uh, noesis. Uh, these are, this is just his quick thoughts listening to us ramble a little bit. Uh, similarly, the concept of machine functions more as a reminder for the necessity of a pragmatic interpretation of every concept. This concept of machine fuses both object-level and meta-level considerations in a way that can block us into a corner. These concepts be, that become increasingly emphasized, spirit, intensities, assemblages, and multiplicities, are more flexible than the notions of desire and machine and less liable to give rise to a one-sided metaphysical misreading. As he says, in the later works, assemblage becomes a key term and is presented as double-sided. Collective assemblage of enunciation and machinic assemblages of desire. The role of enunciation becomes prominent, more prominent than in Antiedipus, and this relative primacy of enunciation corrects the one-sided impression of a primacy of the machinic. It's a really uh, good breakdown over some of the later Deleuze writing, and, and those who've, who have followed Deleuze and Guattari's footsteps, for sure. But it, I think it fits a lot, of, Brune will correct me, I'm sure, but it fits a lot more, I think, into uh, some of Guattari's other works as well. I have a question about the creation of the subject, um, but mostly about this uh, relating to another thing. Mm -hmm. So through the, through the three synthesis and desire, um, we're talking about the production of the subject. Um, but I'm just wondering, is that a similar system to how the other is produced? Or is that a completely different system? Uh, I'm sorry, the other in what sense? You mean the Lacanian other? Um, well, I maybe mean more the phenomenological other. Um, like Levinas? This would be difficult because they're not doing phenomenology. 
Yeah, they're very critical of uh, phenomenology. Like, um, yeah. and I mean, I don't want to put phenomenology under the bracket of, let's say, Kantianism, but like one of the things they open up with is like they're saying, let's ignore uh, transcendental. Let's, I mean, like really, they open up with, you know, we're going to talk about a transcendentalism, but let's ignore any distinction between the transcendental and empirical. That's why part of the book is so weird, but they sort of open up with that. So that's why I say I, I don't think we can put any connection between phenomenology. Well, we don't want to go back into a phenomenological method. So when we're, so it is possible to talk about others and, and things like that, but it's not going to be from the perspective of consciousness, right? Um, and that's really important here. When we look at the exclusive disjunction, Right, and where they talk about things like uh, subjugated groups and subject groups, majoritarianism and minoritarianism, things like that. This is more along the lines of otherization, but it's not going to function in the same way as somebody like, uh, I guess, Levinas is thinking about it. And it's not going to be something that the person is necessarily producing um through themselves, right? So it's not going to be a problem of otherizing an identity in and of itself, right? That is to say, it's not going to be a problem of um, uh, I, Christian, you, atheist, right? Other, in that sense of difference. For Deleuze and Guattari, the difference is more uh, more fundamental than that, I think, if I can risk saying that. Aren't you kind of, by making them say that there is no uh, phenomenology in Deleuze Guattari, aren't you making it about phenomenology for Deleuze Guattari? I got the distinct feeling that they basically say, okay, there's phenomenology um, and it exists, but we are going beyond that, you know, we are we are not discrediting phenomenology here. We are maybe um, at times banning um, the 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 polarization of society towards phenomenology because it can deal with that as uh, entity beyond um, a triangle you know if you get deep into metaphysical uh, thought and um, uh, heidegger as well as sartre um, and uh, herschel laid the groundwork for that of course for herschel and uh, then you um, still read can read uh, phenomenology but I don't think um, the Lusquatari have an opinion about it at all. I think they see that as a um, discipline which not not so much like um, adds to their um, to to their teaching. It 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 of it it how do you say it in English? It 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 does they put forward themselves. It's not in the way of their theories at all. So I don't think it's a hard no on phenomenology. I think that there are rather a lot of uh, similarities between uh, late Sartre uh, as um, last phenomenologist and the Lusik Vatari in uh, political um, views, you know. They talk uh, a lot about fascism as uh, Sartre. Uh, does um, on his most phenomenological uh, standpoint. So um, 
I don't really see uh, a reason to discredit phenomenology. And uh, maybe I was wrong, but I got a little bit the feeling that it's basically put away as um, the science of consciousness. And they are not talking about how the episteme of consciousness is, but they, they do point quite nicely. Look, there is an episteme of consciousness and it is in phenomenology. That is at least how I uh, read the text. So to respond to that, I agree that they're not trying to say phenomenology is bullshit. Uh, and to put it really bluntly, I, I don't think that's what they're saying at all. Um, uh, and I agree with you that they're influenced by um, Sartre and Tetz, such as um, critique of dialectical reason, which they cite in the end notes. Um, so I, I agree with you on those points. My interest is not to put ba things back into consciousness and phenomenology, as I've said. My interest is also to juxtapose the phenomenological methodology, right? Or, um, and, and we can get into, because there are critical points they make about phenomenology. So they do have criticisms, but they're, as always with them, I don't think their criticisms are about, um, even with Lacan, I don't think they're trying to say Lacan uh, was always full of shit and we should throw out everything he said. Right, Deleuze and Guadri are bricklers. They are working with what's around them and changing things. Um, and that's really critical there because even with Sartre and phenomenology, right, they're still, they still have an interest in it. They're just not, um, it's not really about whether it's right or wrong for them. Uh, to the point about putting it back into phenomenology, I don't think I am by juxtaposing them. Um, in fact, I'm juxtaposing them in order to say that there's a difference. So I don't think I've put it back into phenomenology doing that. Uh, but it is important to understand, like, and I've only read some of the early Sartre, but, you know, where Sartre talks about consciousness and freedom and, like, this kind of freedom that you can have through the transcendence of the ego, like Deleuze and Guattari, how they're laying out the unconscious or even things like... Um, even things like biunivocalization, right? These aren't going to fit in as neatly into things like um, the transcendence of the ego or the otherization that um, somebody like Levinas or people influenced by Levinas, their, their normal conceptions of it. There's a lot of differentiation happening here, especially because in, in the transcendence of the ego, Sartre's one of his first essays, he says there's not an unconscious, right? He's trying to get out of the entire Freudian paradigm and put everything into freedom and consciousness, right? And obviously by creating the metaphysics of the unconscious, Deleuze and Quattery uh, are obviously differencing them, uh, differentiating themselves quite a bit there. Yeah, but um, if, you, if you take the text of Sartre, like he wrote, um, that's not a part of consciousness, he wrote that in maybe one and a half pages, you know, so it's it's not really he was not dedicated to um, to discredit um, psychoanalysis. He later went to Lacan, and Lacan mentioned it in his um, in his seminars that uh, Sartre was a patient of him, and he credited the following to him that text to Sartre. I think it was 1996, uh, 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 yeah, 1996, and that. Um, uh, Sartre uh, became a patient of Lacan uh, that he saw crabs basically and 
uh, Lacan solved it by saying the, the crabs are um, loneliness. Uh, they are um, basically your uh, loneliness um, metastasizing uh, into crab, um, not people, but crabs. Uh, so um, Sartre started to ignore the crabs and then they went away. And uh, Lacan saw this as a successful analysis. Um, so they corresponded more or less and they um, actually swapped out um, like uh, the luck from Jacques Lacan is um, Sartre's um, is actually a concept Sartre uh, put, uh, put towards emotion. So for Sartre emotion was uh, lack and for uh, Lacan <coughs> lack was this um, the same concept that basically if uh, Sartre writes about this um, 38 essay magic and emotion he talks about the Lacanian lack model so they they knew about each other they they had the same uh, statements um, and where they could help each other they did but um, I don't think that the fact that the unconscious isn't real is uh, doing it justice enough it's like the way the unconscious does not become real what is interesting and I found interesting in Sartre if you read Sartre talk about conscious of unconsciousness, he talks about um, probably you sitting not behind the other person, like Freud did and the other psychoanalysis, but he, he puts you in a situation where you are facing one another. So I'm looking towards a chair up which you sit upon and vice versa, you sit upon the chair who looks uh, at me, you know, and we converse and you uh, from outside the window thunderstorm coming a thunderstorm coming so the for us is we talk about because you see that coming i don't coming it's the most important thing in the room it's basically an a priori in thunderstorm so um, that cannot be ignored so that becomes part of the talk and um then he says yeah of course this doesn't exist you know of this this exists too much to be uh, unconscious so um, mm -hmm. the, the awareness that we have about the thunderstorm is basically uh, what we can treat right away or what we um, have knowledge of and what we uh, talk about the sure. whole time. So it's not something that's not aware. Sure, but you can already see there's a major difference between the consciousness of the thunderstorm and the unconscious production of the thunderstorm and the person perceiving that thunderstorm, right? And everything in between those connections, yeah. And this is my point. I'm not trying to get out. Deleuze and Guattari have found the truth, or Sartre and phenomenology haven't. I'm, I'm not interested in that question. I'm interested in the juxtaposition of the two, so as to be able to understand the differences between the methodologies. I don't think either of the thinkers, well, I guess there's more than two, I don't think any of these thinkers um, are too interested in, in that question. But I will say um, what's important to me is understand the differences here and what we can do with those differences, which I think is something, um, especially in that last part about consciousness, I think you and I agree there, right? Because there's, there's still a question of consciousness, but we're not really going to deal with that as much in Antiedipus because they're very concerned they're, Deleuze and Guadagno are very concerned with just focusing on the pre-conscious. And I've given criticisms of things like Wolf and that to explain the limits of that. And that would be a more Marxian, me criticizing a more Marxian thought there. Um, the last thing I would say, be, because you mentioned Lacan and that, and Lack, 
that would imply a criticism there, though, because Deleuze and Guadri have a, you know, they're very concerned with what's done, how, how lack is conceptualized, that ontological move, and what's produced through that, right? Uh, they obviously have a lot of thoughts on lack itself. So these are the points I'm interested in, is those juxtapositioning points, not to say that one's better than the other, right? Because even when they criticize Lacan, you know, they're, they're not trying to say Lacan has never said anything of value. And even with Oedipus, right, they never go so far as to say Oedipus needs to be debunked, Oedipus needs to be seen as not real. They're more concerned about people who don't think Oedipus is real, right? What they're trying to get at is things like making Oedipus more difficult by saying that it's not necessarily the case every time, that the unconscious didn't produce it per se, right? that the unconscious is still affected by it. So there is a reality to it. You know, these are important points to understand with them as they're building up these responses. But I'll also say, I, I did enjoy the transcendence of the ego. So <laughs> even though it's not, you can't exactly square with Antiedipus, I did enjoy the essay. Yeah, I think that basically the, what we can conclude from this is that Husserl uh, would actually be of, because Husserl very much liked to include psychoanalysis in his phenomenology opposed to uh, Sartre and also Heidegger, which Lacan uh, sometimes refers to in terms of phenomenology. But uh, I think like Husserl would be a very good pick to somebody who is like now done with anti-Oedipus. I can't imagine anyone is, but let's, let's put a hypothetical that one is, then one can put Husserl uh, to use, I think. And to be honest, that's one of my own private side projects. So um, I may be projecting that um, too much, but uh, I, I like to read uh, Rousseau and it's very comforting to me. All right, awesome. Uh, any last questions or things before we close out? It is two o'clock, so I'm gonna slowly uh, push us to end. I'm gonna head off and do some things. Uh, Jack, did you figure out uh, what I was quoting? Talked about inanimate objects, just have to ask. Yeah, man, you're quoting the Flintstones as always. It's quoting V. I couldn't resist. Oh my god. Just hurt my brain some. Wonderful, wonderful. Alright, uh hey, hey, we're both members of the Buffalo Lodge, man. So. <laughs> Alright. Alright, well with that, uh thank all of you for joining us uh again. Tomorrow uh we will be continuing our reading of Anti-Oedipus as we move into 1.5, I believe. Uh so please join us back here at noon uh, LA time and we will be doing the reading then. Uh but please stick around, feel free to chat and we will uh talk and chat with you all soon.